0: Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to Episode 8 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. You know, I've really been looking forward to this episode not only because I loved the book, Mind Your Life, written by my special guest, Meg Salter, but because I love her approach to both executive coaching and mindfulness coaching. You know, over the last seven episodes of my new podcast, I'm sure I emphasized the importance of mindfulness in every episode, and probably multiple times in every episode, as we looked at the tips and tricks inherent in the Buddha's Eightfold Path. And as we looked at how Buddhism looks at things in general. So I've visited some big questions with you guys so far. And I hope you notice that I haven't necessarily pointed out any big esoteric or sure answers. Because it's much more about creating an ability to sit with the questions. So the reason I refer to this podcast as Everyday Buddhism is because it's about the everyday. It's practical and it's pragmatic. And what I love about Meg Salter's coaching style, although I haven't had her coach me, but this is from what I know of it, um, she offers the same practical approach in her coaching. You know I discovered Meg's book after beginning meditation practice using the unified mindfulness meditation approach of Shinzen Young which was introduced to me by my Bright Dawn colleague and friend Michael Shinyo Lawrence Hey Michael anyway this meditation approach helped me bring a stable meditation practice back into my everyday life you know I'd been a slacker for a few years and But through the help of Meg's book, I was able to design a system that worked for me throughout the day, not just in formal sitting practice, and even more importantly, to do so without any guilts or shoulds. So that's why I'm excited about having Meg join me t- today. So enough of me. Let's get to my guest, Meg Salter. Meg offers mindfulness coaching and executive coaching from her home base in Toronto, Canada, where she provides also distance coaching all across the world to individuals and groups. You know, Meg's coaching focus is to help her clients develop sustainable skills, allowing them to decrease frustrations, boost resilience, and turn their aspirations into reality. As a professional certified coach, Meg also has an extensive business background and deep experience in meditation, which is the combination that I think is so wonderful for this podcast of mine. In the words of Shinzen Young about Meg, she says, he says, the mainstreaming of mindfulness has become something of a fad. Unfortunately, many authors in that genre know much more about the mainstream than they do about the deep end of what mindfulness practice can deliver not so with meg she has practiced intensively for many decades and she has personal experience of how a mindfulness practice can provide quote the big guns unquote that deliver the goods when all else fails and he discover evidence based coaching strategies to help you turn good intentions into sustainable practice meg has med- been meditating since 1995 and she's gained profound experience in that practice, all the while pursuing a career in raising children, not running away to some seven-year ret- silent retreat. And this, to me, is something you can, um, you can bank on. If you can do meditation while you're busy in a career and raising children, then you can teach it. Um, so you can read more about Meg on our web- website, MegSalter.com and pick up her book on her website or through Amazon. And I will, of course, include those links in my show notes on the website. So we're going to get to Meg now. Meg, thank you so much for joining me today. And guess what? It's on her birthday, too. Happy birthday, Meg, and thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Wendy. Uh, It's a delight to be with you. It's a delight to be able to talk to your listeners. Congratulations on your fabulous podcast. And I consider this podcast a very auspicious start to the year for me. <laughs> That's great. That's
0: great. But let's get to mindfulness. Your book, why you wrote it, all those things. So I'm going to turn it over to you and sort of have you tell me your intro story, so everybody knows.
1: Yes. Um, thank you, Wendy. Um, so, as Shenzhen mentions, I've I've been at this for quite a while, since the mid '90s, to be precise. And you know my intro story, how I got into meditation, was, was um, sort of landed on my on my tush basically. I I kind of heard about meditation in you know in university days, and I checked out a Zen center, but found I didn't like the tofu very much. Um, and I sort of read about the philosophies of the great religions, um, but you know kind of put it aside. Got married. Second time that was successful was raising children, um, had a successful career. My husband and I would both had type A careers being type A people. Um, and so things were kind of going along reasonably well, but there, you know, we'd reached the stage where, um, some of the illusions were gone. Everyday life isn't as easy as you perhaps thought, whether that's your career or your family life or what have you, but things were bumping along, you know, as reasonably well. Um. And then out of the blue, my brother suicided. Um, it was totally unexpected. He was the kind of guy who talked to other people out of their suicidal intentions. Um, wow. And he used a twenty-two rifle that belonged to our dad. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so that kind of blew a hole in things. Um, so for me what actually happened and I'm an MBA. I had two kids. I was, you know, top level managerial track at one of the global banks. And, and I heard a little voice in my head that said, you know, you should meditate or you could end up like John. (laughs) And I'm, you know, I'm a pretty straight up kind of individual. Um, But luckily I knew about meditation and I did seek out support and I Just because I knew I had to get real. Something in me had to get more real than, not that I was unreal. I had a pretty practical, grounded career. I'd taken my MBA. I traveled globally. But I kind of wanted to touch those depths and those ideals that had been important to me in my teens and 20s, as we all are. But kind of integrate those into into my own life, into my family life, which had cracks, into my professional life, which wasn't as golden as I thought it was going to be. Um, so for me, it was a stressor and a trauma. Um, and that's what gets a lot of people into it is, is how do I deal with those stresses? How do I deal with those traumas in my life? But, you know, as we were saying earlier too, Wendy, um, like my brother, John was a good guy Hmm. and how could he do this? And so I guess the underlying question that has stayed with me throughout my years of meditation is how, how is it that good people do horrible things to themselves, to other people? You know, why is it there's this huge gap between our often good intentions and our, you know, sadly lagging realities? You spoke to this in one of your podcasts about being a bit less of a jerk.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, but that's sort of been the underlying driver for me really is, um, one could say ethical in a way. hmm doing less harm, mm-hmm. uh, carrying out my better self on a, more often, more frequently. Um, that's been the underlying thread, but also in short term is just making it through the day. So Meg, so you say it's about making it through
0: the day. You know, you started with this big thing about your brother committing suicide. So that's like this huge, huge thing that caused you... And you're right. I think this happens to a lot of people. It's like a big traumatic experience that causes us to reevaluate our lives and where we are. Is that what caused you to like,
1: look down to every part of your life? Well, I mean, that makes it sound nice and logical. I don't think it was like that originally. I did have this voice in my saying you should meditate and since I don't usually get voices in my head, I I listened and I I took some training and initially in mindfulness-based stress reduction and other different traditions after that and and somehow never stopped. Um, And I think the reason I never stopped, and I've stopped and started lots of other things, is that while initially it was difficult, uh, I initially found the practice of meditation very difficult but stuck with it, probably because of the initial stress and trauma is I just found every day getting a tiny little bit better. So, you know, it was shortly after my brother's death, my husband and I decided to move. And this time, the company wasn't going to pay for it. And, you know, he he had to relocate. I had to find a new job. I'd recently gone on my own to consulting. Um, you know, the kids were entering adolescence. Like, it was crazy. Um, and, and I found things like, I stopped blaming my husband for things that were beyond his control. I mean, like, get a transfer, why don't you? Well, he couldn't get a transfer. So I just started to see little micro changes in everyday life. And, you know, I kind of joke with my clients that this is, this is a game of inches, um, but they're sustainable inches. Um, so you know, how I deal with my kids? how I deal with my husband or my mother or my clients or my fatigue or my sniffly nose. Um, So I started off and I think many people start off because of some big reason, capital B, capital R. And that motivation is really important in any kind of personal transformation effort, whether that's executive coaching or mindfulness, is you need to have a reason. And the bigger the hurt, the bigger the reason.
0: Right, right, right. And, and, and in always, like you said, even in executive coaching, the bigger the trauma or the stress of, of, of what's going on around them, the bigger the need, as long as they've identified what that is.
1: Yeah. So you start off with a, a need of some kind, but then it's not like some kind of magic light bulb goes off and your life is transformed. You're still <laughs> the same old person, um, only a slightly better version. Um, and, and quite frankly, if you were a different person, I think you should be scared. Right. That's right. more like a cult. Um, so, uh, so you're
0: right, what you're saying, it's not about an instant connection to bliss then, right?
1: <laughs> I wish <laughs> in my case, it wasn't in my case, my first couple of months, I, I mentioned this in the book. I, I had sort of what I call the itchy crawlies. My whole body was just like, you know um, well, I come from a colder climate. So uh, it's, like when you come inside in the cold and your fingers and toes start to thaw. It's a good thing. They're thawing, right? But it doesn't, right. it hurts. And, and so I probably store a lot of stress in my body, in body tension. And this was a slow melting of body stress on the cushion without me chewing anyone's head off.
0: Yeah yeah you know I think that's true and especially in the in the tradition or in the technique that you describe in your book which we can get to later but just as a touching base there is I can I can testify to this because I've done a lot of meditation over the years but I have never done meditation in this particular methodology the unified mindfulness methodology of see hear feel or i think the way you put it is hear see feel or something right (laughs) yeah but Mm -hmm. um there's so much you know it, it it's it's sort of a vipassana based i guess and it's it there's so much focus on what's going on around you in you and everything i think you can get that like oh my gosh you know my body's alive you know i i started focusing on like pain in my feet i had arthritic feet and i would notice that the the pain would move and it felt like a snake <laughs> it's, it's it's like it was very strange and so yeah i think uh emphasizing i think for anybody who's just starting a meditation practice or returning to a meditation practice that there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of uncomfortableness in your at some times for some people um and and before you get to the calm
1: or mixed in with the calm although some people have different experiences right some people everyone has a different experience i mean i'm being honest about mine because um i I think part of the issue now i mean mindfulness is very hot Uh, a lot of people are promoting it and talking about it and how great it is. And that's fabulous. That's, I mean, I really think that's a wonderful thing that it's entering the mainstream. Um, But you have to be careful about overselling. Yes. And it's, if you want to sell a product, you you say how good it is. You don't (laughs) necessarily say the first few months could be awkward. Um, But I think that, you know, when you talk to people who've been through any kind of schooling Uh, or learning and development or training activity, there's a thing called a learning curve. Right. And that's what this is. And so my book is one of the many that can help you get through a learning curve. First of all, know that there will be one. Yeah. uh, And that that's normal. And not to put yourself down or stop practice because you don't reach some kind of bliss in six weeks. (laughs) Um, Give yourself a break. Yeah. Uh, You know, you're rewiring your brain, you're rewiring your body. And as one of the people I interviewed for the book said, you know, if you picked up a violin, you would not sound like a concert master in six weeks (laughs) and your whole family would leave you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So cut yourself some slack. uh, Be compassionate with yourself. uh, But know that if you approach this in a way that um, is sustainable and customizable to you and some people like breath practice but not everybody does right um, that you find a way that works for you like any skill you have to practice it you know if you go to the um, physical trainer yeah. you might do some exercises in the gym but they'll say by the way walk up and down a flight of stairs every day don't take the elevator yeah or walk park at the far end of the mall and get an extra couple hundred yards in meditation is the same So you can do wonderful things in the morning or the evening and formal practice. And I'm a big believer that formal practice is part of your approach, but then you got to take it off the cushion into the streets of your life.
0: Yeah. You know, um, and I'm going to like backtrack a little bit because what I love what you said, and this was so true to me is, um, I came, you know, a lot of people come to meditation from a lot of different practices and, you know, some of my audience, uh, are Buddhists. Some are not Buddhist, um, um, so, and some are like probably haven't meditated or haven't meditated for years, but I came from like the Buddhist based meditation and I went through all the different, you know, Tibetan meditation, visualization. And I think you did too. Um, and, and one of the things that I think I inherited sometimes I think it's like Catholic guilt. You have Tibetan guilt, you know, I think I inherited, um, Uh, uh, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way for anyone, but you, what I inherited was this, this, I wasn't doing it right all the time. And I always had trouble with following my breath. So, you know, shamatha calm abiding was always seeming like I can't do that either. And I just felt like a failure in a lot of practices. And, and I think there's, you know, there are, isn't one right way for anyone. And the fact that there's all these multiple methods that you out present in your book um, really, and, and, and in the, in the unified mindfulness system, you know, in general, I think the interesting thing here is that um, what I found is I lightened that load of having to do it right or having to do it at certain times or, And the fact that I could just like do it for two minutes sitting at the desk, wow. And it really worked. You know, so that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up.
1: It, you know, what, it does really work. Um, This idea that we can explore ourselves at a deeper level, know thyself, right, goes back to Socrates. um, And that there are different ways to cultivate depths in our being greater intimacy and connection and love between us different levels of vitality and energy those are universal wendy
0: those go
1: back hundreds and thousands of years and people have been rediscovering this over and over time because it's a natural human potential right and it gets written down by whoever came across a method that worked for them and it gets codified in their language and the culture of their time and the geography of their place. And then it kind of gets put in a book and reified. Um, So there are lots of ways to meditate. You could say there's as many as there are people. That's a little too broad perhaps, (laughs) Uh, but um, knowing that there are many, many ways and finding what works for you now. And what works for you now may be different than six months to a year from now. Good point. What works for you on a good day may be different than what works for you on a really hard day. So having, you know, multiple carpenter tools in your belt, multiple (laughs) tools in your kitchen. um, You know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So having a repertoire um, can, you know, you've got to learn the repertoire, at least one or two to start with. Mm -hmm. But it it does a couple things. Like you say, it takes away the woulda, shoulda, doing it right piece. Um, It helps you build a discipline that is doable in your day. Right. You do have some formal time, 10 minutes minimum, more. But then you also have ways to integrate it during your day, during your life. So that, you know, before that difficult meeting, um, after a hard day, in the middle of a traffic jam, when somebody cuts you off, uh, there are lots and lots of triggers. Uh, that you can use to become more present, more compassionate more more mindful in your life, and to me that 's the real benefit is when you've taken off the cushion, yeah
0: yeah Expe- like, explain to to
1: explain to us t- about triggers you use that word well um, because i 'm an executive coach uh, integral master coach, one of the things that I help people become aware of is standard patterns they have ways of reacting in certain situations. Certain kinds of people, uh, emotional triggers we're familiar with through emotional intelligence, um, certain ways of behaving and perceiving the world that are no longer functioning as well as they could. Right. And so becoming aware of those. Uh, a recent client of mine, very competent woman, you to vice president, had a way of kind of walking in and taking charge. Well, you know, she was usually right. <laughs> Um, In a situation, you have to have have that take charge control, but it tended to shut down other people in a way she didn't intend or was aware of. So becoming aware of whatever those patterns are and becoming, I call it situational mindfulness, uh, becoming aware of how you turn up in certain situations. Um, Having the ability, as my client called it, to pause, to assess, and to adapt. Those were her words. Wow. Not mine. Um, So having the ability to know um, what's working and not working for you and where you need to be a little bit more self-aware or other aware. So that's mindfulness on the go, uh, situational mindfulness and uh, it, it changes people. Yeah. People around.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's so important in, in everyday life. And you know, to to sort of touch on this mindfulness as a buzz concept, yes, we're all very happy that it is out there now. But I do think it it, it because of its um, the fact that it's everywhere, right? Um, that I th- I think it it has a tendency to overpromise and and for most people, if they're going to sit down and try to sit it on their cushion in the morning, even for five minutes, and count their breath or even uh, look at their breath or do anything like that watch it you know feel it come out of their nose um, if they try to do that they're they're going to give up um, I, I think in most cases uh, and and you know then there's this other concept of Then you have to have a teacher. So if you try it on your own, because everybody says, oh, mindfulness is accessible. Anybody can do it now. It's accessible. Um, So then you think, well, it wasn't accessible for me, so maybe I need a teacher. And then it introduces that whole cycle of not doing it right, how to do it, and that what you say, mindfulness on the go and situational mindfulness is so important because What you're saying is at every moment in our day, we have the opportunity to pause and look at ourselves and say, "Him, what's going on here? Right. It's pretty much a matter of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so what mindfulness will do is it will, um, it will kind of like open up your window into your interiors. It will, uh, you sit down and do whatever your practice is. It's breath, it's body scan. It's some kind of, you know, hearing, in and out, whatever it is, whatever it is you're going to do will last for about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you're, or what's what I call in the book, your default attentional network, Dan, your, your inner yabbity-yabbity will come to light and <laughs> you'll think that's a problem. Um, but now you're becoming aware of what you're thinking when you don't think that you're thinking. Or you'll become aware of what you're feeling when you don't feeling much of anything. So it's a huge internal probe. Um, And and so becoming aware of, oh yeah, that's, that's what I do. That's what I'm like, darn. Um, Let me be more aware of that um, in my 10, 15 minute morning session so that during the day when something comes along, I'm better able to handle it. Yeah. Better able to express myself differently more compassionately more intelligently with more presence let's revisit dan okay um. <laughs> <laughs> i i, I- I love
0: Dan, but what, what, what you talked about, Dan, is Dan is when most people, what Dan is that thing where, and I can't tell you how many times I've had this happen to me, and I am sure you've had it happen to you too, um, because I work with my clients in mindfulness practice as well sometimes, and also just people who ask me questions about Buddhism and mindfulness. But the, the, it's, this is the standard question, or it's actually a, a declaration I can't meditate because I can't stop my thoughts. Mm -hmm. So as if that was the purpose, right? Um, As if that was even possible. So if in you, maybe you can talk a little about Mr. Dan and we can understand
1: this a little. Yeah. Um, Well, this is based on some of the very exciting new developments in neuroscience And there are some, I mean, I do cover off some of this in my book, although I'm not a neuroscientist, there are some excellent books. Daniel Goleman's recent book called Altered Traits is fantastic. Um, um, And not that I want to reduce everything to the head or the brain. Um, (laughs) That being said, there is some fantastic science coming out that looks at the different neural pathways that are affected by mindfulness practice, by meditation practice. And one of them is called the default mode network. I changed it to the default attentional network, one because I can make a cute acronym out of it like Dan, and secondly because it is about our attention. So, this is the area of the brain that is active when we're not intentionally thinking about anything in particular. It's kind of like the background hum of an air conditioner in the room, right? It's kind of going along all the time. And there is some speculation that this is part of our brain that is correlated with my sense of being Meg or your sense of being Wendy or our sense of stable self-identity because of these little internal thoughts going through your head. Um, so when you sit down early in practice, you realize that Dan exists. <laughs> you didn't even know you right? were being driven by this, but you didn't even know. So that's why I sometimes call this a J curve. You start off at a certain level, but there's a, you go, it, it feels worse before it gets better. yeah Yeah. and if you know that that's kind of like part of the deep dive and you're up for it and you're the kind of person who has also got some other accomplishments in your life under your belt you've taken a degree you've kept a marriage together you've raised a family you've done some advocacy work like you know that something worthwhile takes effort right why that would be the same here like anything else so um mindfulness practice kind of hacks into Dan, the default attentional network, by doing at least one thing. And that is revving up the area that is associated with our moment by moment experience, which I acutely call Momo. <laughs> <laughs> because you have this dialogue between Dan and Momo. Yeah, right. Moment by moment experience is also always there. You know, there's a part of us, it's probably more the so-called early limbic system that is conference, constantly on the lookout for the sights and sound around us. Is there a baby crying? Is there somebody going to cut you off in traffic? Is there going to be a tiger jumping out of that bush? <laughs> um, is, there, is there some kind of weird smell coming out of this food? Um, it's part of our survival as, as creatures. Um, but normally that too is humming along in the background because in North America we live pretty sanitized lives and we don't have to pay attention to that very much. That's one of the reasons people like adventure sports is ah, because they're heightened awareness because they have to pay attention to the rock face, the snow, um, the, the the eddy in the river coming up. All your senses are heightened because you put yourself in a somewhat dangerous situation. Right, right. So... Um, accentuating your momentary experiences through something like mindfulness does this in a safe way. <laughs> right. um, so you're kind of ramping up your moment by moment faculties and that kind of dials down the default attentional network. So why would you care? Um, <laughs> well, first of all, you know, There's a couple of reasons. One is you get to know what Dan is telling you and it could be your voice. It could be your mother's voice. It could be, your kid's voice it could be a voice from when you were 12 years old so you get to hear this voice without necessarily having to believe it <coughs> right or buy into it which is, which is huge it creates that healthy separation that allows a response um, the other thing too is that this default rumination that occurs all the time is associated with low level unhappiness and again mm-hmm. there's evidence to support this So, um, when you're kind of wop, wopping around, not thinking of anything in particular, you are actually thinking, you know, water under the iceberg a little bit, and it tends to be associated with low grade unhappiness. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That's,
0: you know, and and I was just want to go back on that. It's like you said, um, you, you are aware of these things without necessarily having to buy into them. I guess that's the practice too, isn't it? Because, um, you, you somehow have to make friends with these things appearing in your default attention network, Um, these voices. um, One of the things I did was a trick that I learned in Unified Mindfulness is start, I started giving them names, you know, oh, there's the judge, you know, there's, there's the, there, there's Miss Guilt, there's, there's this, so that, it, that they became less threatening to me and I and I was able to distance myself from them. That is that is the practice, isn't it? That's the hard part is to like see it come in and then, you know, not buy into it, not engage.
1: You've named it, Wendy. And I think the difference is here is that you're able to um, do what I call a healthy disidentification. Right. Rather than a repression or dissociation. Mm-hmm. A repression or dissociation are never good. Uh, but you're able to say, oh, that's a thought or that's an emotional feeling or that you can give it, you know, brand names like that's that's my judging part or that's my inner critic or uh, that's a little girl who never came out of the corner or whatever. But you don't want to buy into the content too much. You want to kind of go, oh, hi. And like, <laughs> yeah, OK. <laughs> over and over and over again. And that disidentification, I almost think of it like a like a magnetic grip. Uh, And we're we're caught in that grip, we buy into the story, we act it out, we believe that our thoughts are true and that our emotions are valid. And this tiny, tiny gap, like nanoseconds, microseconds, can let us go, huh, maybe. And that slight openness and that slight questioning allows you the space of freedom. And I think one of the fundamental things that mindfulness does, and this kind of builds into the resilience aspect that it builds is, uh, and one of the reasons there's that J curve and it can initially feel worse before it feels better. You wonder what the heck has this teacher done to me? Um, (laughs) Is is you're taking a counterintuitive stance to stresses and challenges. And if you think about what we are programmed to do as creatures, as physical creatures, you know, we started off with, bigger creatures running us and chasing after us, right? Right. Um, And and children who were fragile and and died. Um, Is that our automatic response is to tighten up and turn away. Right. to fight it off. Right. So to develop a stance that is open, relaxed, and curious to things that freak us out, that's pretty darn challenging. Yeah. So you start off with small things, but you're building this inner ability to relax and open to something novel uh which may or may not be a good thing um and and that's that's a pretty fundamental rewiring but when you can do that and then something goes wrong in your day or you know somebody gets laid off or somebody comes home with a fatal you know some kind of diagnosis or something somebody gets shot um as happened in our city a couple days ago um and you have this inner pause that allows you to kind of take a somewhat different perspective on things yeah
0: you know that the, the, the i want to go back to that it's like that's you said that you're building you're building the ability to pause slightly and take it in i think that's the biggest thing and that's the hardest thing for most people i think especially in the reality in which we live in this culture where we're we're constantly wired and it's not about tigers anymore. It's about our smartphones, you know, (laughs) It's it's about all the things, all the, um, all the, the, the sort of things that are happening to us, um, and, and that we're addicted to have happening so that pauses aren't even a possibility. And I think that's, What's probably even harder now than it was like to learn meditation 20 years ago is that we have too many distractions, and're we're, um, we're very used to this constant somebody does this and I react, somebody does this and I say it, you know it's like on social media, um, without ever a pause.
1: That's true, Wendy. And I think also in, in the world of work and leadership, if you're um, a leader of some kind, someone comes to you, you're expected to know the answer right now. Yep. Yep. That's why you got the job because you're good in finance or marketing or banking or whatever it is, you know? And so the ability to get curious and, and to say in some areas you don't know, well, that doesn't look like a promotable skill. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but this is, I think, you know, you're hitting on something that I think is really important and, and curious is that, um, you know, with the, um, 24 7, uh, on demand, the digital availability, the ability to connect globally. I have mindfulness clients in Dubai, in the Emirates, in Europe, and across North America, and we could connect through Zoom, which is fabulous. Um, It's almost like um, the world is making a demand for us to expand our bandwidth. It's like there's more volume coming through. And I think this is why people are stressed. because they are, the expectations have been raised in some ways. Um, and, and it's just like life throwing us down a gauntlet of a challenge. Is to you know, we've, we've got to, we have to expand our attentional bandwidths, And mindfulness is one way to do that. It's like you go from a, a low baud rate to a high baud rate. You go from a little trickle of a river to a great big river. It just carries more. And, and I think that's the challenge that we 're all facing, and one of the reasons why mindfulness and meditation is so hot, and one of the reasons why it's so important to me that it be properly understood
0: yeah 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 um you know one of the for me, one of the things when i you know when I stopped being a meditation slacker and um, picked up the the practice of unified mindfulness and and built a, a, a sort of a a schedule that works for me and a way to do it that works for me, which is what your book does help you do. Um, one of the things that I noticed the most was it was that pause that helped me realize I actually started because I was paying attention to how uh, how hair-triggered I was, how, um, how much things on the outside affected me on the inside which i wasn't even aware of before it was just happening like you know people you carry tension in your shoulders or your or or you your your face starts flushing when you feel like there's a demand on you that you can't meet and you're not even aware of that normally it just it's happening and then at the end of the day you're stressed out like crazy and you don't know why but one of the things that was brilliant for me was that I was able to notice, even though I'm not like one of those horrible social media freaks, I am highly wired to the social media due to my business. And, and what I found is that um, I was seeing that if I wasn't constantly doing something or interacting with someone out there wherever they live, that I felt like something was wrong and I
1: noticing that helped me not do it <laughs> does that make sense totally and it's the you know for you it could be um, you know the social media the attention being pulled out that's the case for a lot of people um, that's a particular pattern and and you highlighted one of the key things Wendy which is the very noticing of it yeah helps to create a change you didn't have to create a New Year's resolution <laughs> although those can be helpful. mm -hmm. Um, The very noticing of it was liberating. Uh, So there are lots of analogies for that. You created one. People will say things like, you know, it's like I'm sitting on the river and my thoughts are floating by or it it could be more like a thunderstorm in your head. It's the thoughts will likely be there for quite some time, (laughs) um, but your relationship to the thoughts is different. Uh, Relationship to the emotional connections is different Um, it's like there is a bigger you that is watching you be upset and it's that it's it's like that i'm you know that bigger you has a higher seat in the theater or or (laughs) further up the mountain or whatever analogy you want to use and as you become aware of what is called the witness um it's the one who can say oh look at that oh look at that there's a thought, there's an emotion, there's a feeling, there's, there's guilt, there's being triggered. Well, there's somebody who's saying that. I'm not saying somebody, but there's a larger awareness that's capable of doing that. That's enormously freeing. Yeah. And, and, and builds connection with people. Yeah, you know, um,
0: I've always referred to that when I've talked to people about meditation and mindfulness. Is, I call it the big me um and that how there's something amazingly freeing about and it's very noticeable um and people don't maybe know that if they haven't practiced but it's very noticeable that you get bigger and i don't mean like all of a sudden you look down and your body's bigger it's like you you start having sort of first of all you're not like trapped in your mind and you're not trapped in your body and you're sort of like have no like um you know no edges to you or something and and then what happens is that it's that that's what creates the ability to see something like that happening within you and not not going with it because it isn't
1: you you've all you're bigger than that now right? yeah, <laughs> that. yeah one of the one of the people in the book uh, and I interviewed um, several dozen people who'd managed to keep a meditation practice going for at least three years so I wanted to talk with people who had been through that learning curve and who'd found a way out as successful, positive role models. And so one woman sort of said, meditation makes you feel lighter. <laughs> Unfortunately, that doesn't show up on the scales. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Which is another version of bigger or lighter or more expansive. Um, in other traditions, that's associated with um, uh, some of the so-called higher feelings like compassion or forgiveness or kindness or joy, um, you know, that come from a more expansive, broadened, more inclusive sense of self. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those
0: things that you're talking about. Cause you mentioned the word resilience and, and then I wanted to touch on that higher uh, compassion thing and I wanted to touch on equanimity. So talk to us a little more about, um, resilience, which I think is an elusive emotional skill for many of us, um, I know it has been for me at times in my life. You know, just when you need it the most, it isn't there. So, talk
1: to us about resilience. Well, you know, because of my work as an as an executive coach and an organizational consultant, prior to that, I am um, very interested in the whole notion of resilience, and also due to my own personal history, um, and and because many people come because they're they're stressed and they're looking for that resilience. Um, I think one of the things to to be aware of is that it's first of all, there's no clear cut definition and one agreed on instrument that assesses resilience. (laughs) It isn't out there. It's, it's a work in progress, as they say. Um, Now resilience is really thought of as the ability to recover, adapt and grow in response to threat or challenge. And so it's not just the bounce back. It's actually the ability to use something horrible, as a catalyst for growth and development, hmm. um, so I think of them like muscles, and muscles have strands in them, right? Right. They have multiple fibers in them. So um, there are a lot of factors that go into resilience. One of them is the neighborhood you grew up in, the physical health you inherited, your social networks, um, things that mindfulness doesn't touch. So let's just be aware that mindfulness is not the be all and end all. Um, But when I look at what's actually involved in resilience, and these are from a variety of accepted psychometric instruments, I was gobsmacked, Wendy, because I thought a lot of these are built through meditation practice, mindfulness practice. So for example, one of the, I won't go through, I have seven in the book, I won't go through all of them, but just enough to give you a flavor. So the first one is the ability to persist. obstacles or failures and we see all kinds of stuff you know you you get up back one more time than you fail that's called a success so um, you know every time you get distracted and you bring your attention back to your breath or your body or whatever that's an act of persistence right you probably do that a hundred times in five minutes (laughs) right and and like who cares it's a low-risk situation nobody's getting hurt Right, right, right. Well, you're practicing this persistence. You're another one is your ability to stay focused under pressure, and I'm sure your clients find that. My clients find that I'm doing a webinar shortly for a sports organization. Athletes have this all the time, right? They call it the mental game, right? How do you stay pressured for that final shot at the basketball or the you know, the penalty shot in hockey? Um, so. Mindfulness does teach you this combination of focus or concentration and equanimity or allowing yourself to experience whatever is being experienced. Uh, so it helps you stay focused under pressure. Um, another one is the ability to handle unpleasant feelings, ah. you know, whether that comes from an itch on your nose or why the heck am I doing this? Or, um, you know, an argument you had um, or a grief that you are carrying or a longer-term stressful situation that you know you can't get out of for a while, and you begin to become very intimately familiar with the feelings where they're held in the body, the uh, thoughts and images, the the thinking that goes with the feeling that ties it together. Uh, I tell you, Wendy, being able to contact where emotions live in the body, for my clients, whether they're executives or not, is one of the most liberating things. Exactly. It's like what well, I was saying know, about, where do you think emotions were going to go in a cartoon bubble somewhere? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> there well, in yeah, our body. You know,
0: and, uh, and that is it. And I, when I've worked with a couple of people uh, using this practice, um, that's the, that's the thing that, that, uh, that sort of blows them out of the water. It's like, um, they think, I tell people that you don't even know that you're feeling many times until all of a sudden you have tension in your shoulders or your neck is stiff and then you realize that there was this thing that happened prior to that that you were feeling and you're so we're i think we're so busy either throwing it out repressing it from all these patterns that we've had in our childhood or whatever that 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 can that connection is severed right we we don't we don't know that. And ha- now that you know that, you, you, can, you can interrupt that, that sort of automatic trigger, right?
1: Exactly. And I find um, that when you become familiar with where you carry your patterns, for me, it's my right shoulder. For somebody, it could be their jaw, their irritable bowel, their whatever, their migraines. I'm not saying there are not also medical components to that but there are a number of things that we carry that are stress related. It may not be a medical issue. It may just be discomfort, but you, you know, the, our body's a certain amount of real estate and you kind of figure out where things are <laughs> and being able to do that in before a stressful meeting, before a sales call, after an argument with your teenager. Um, I think it is one of the biggest, most liberating factors there is. I mean, our, we learn how to feel the instant we're born, right. our thinking process does not come online until several years later. It is associated with more earlier primitive parts of our brain, um, feelings a whole body, you know, body, heart, stress, cortisol um, thing. It's, it's huge. So the ability to handle relatively modest, just uncomfortable feelings like my knees hurt or um, when is the time we're going to go? Uh, or, you know, replaying that I should have said at the last conversation. And becoming aware of the emotional feeling part of that is hugely important. Um, Another one is the ability to stay connected with other people. And I think, you know, people kind of go, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm meditating in a room all by myself. How's that going to help me feel more connected? (laughs) Uh, And and for some people, it won't. And and that's kind of the attitude that you go in with it. But I think... When you, you know, when you go through this and you um, have some equanimity with what you're going through and still maintain your focus and concentration, you're kind of a lot more forgiving of yourself, right? compassionate with yourself, and therefore much more likely naturally to extend that to other people. Yeah. There's lots of you getting in the way of your relationships. As well, of course, there are compassion practices, whether in, in every single religious tradition, whether that's Buddhist or Christian or Islam and judaism uh, i know a little of those um there's some kind of wishing for the well-being of others the golden rule um it's been around for thousands of years so that can also be a part of an active meditation practice is creating positive affirmations positive visualizations may all beings be well offering prayers for the well-being of people um so you can actively cultivate compassion and um well, I'm not as well-versed in this area, it, it does show different neural substrates that are activated. There is some evidence that those activations are quicker and faster and more long-lasting than the Dan piece. Um, uh, and, you know, after a bad day, remember what you have to be grateful for, which is actually a very long list, um, can be a wonderful antidote. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, and to me, I think one of the biggest things that um, – I have benefited from in meditation. It's not just that ability to interrupt, you know, those automatic sort of reflexes and the things that we've talked about before that I've mentioned before, but that decreasing, I think in your book, you you, you set your actual reference, your actual wording was decreasing self-referential thought is increasing equanimity you know i think a lot of people don't even kind of get what equanimity means um and uh, equanimity sounds sort of like big and unreachable but yet through a medita, a mindfulness practice like we're talking about here, there is this sort of natural lessening. It it doesn't happen all at once. It's like not all, all of a sudden, you're like a, a Buddha and you have no concern for yourself or something, or or Christ or something like that. But it's much, much, you know, it's much more um, insidious. Or and insidious is a bad word. It's much slower and smaller, but you you do become aware of it that this, this doesn't bother me. And as this doesn't bother me, I'm not so worried about myself. And if I'm not so worried about myself, I start caring about
1: others. Absolutely. It's um, um, equanimity. Well, first of all, we have to learn to say it right. Um, <laughs> it's a, bit of a mouthful. And then we have to learn that it's not what it's not. So it is not an attitude of indifference. It is not right. a passive stance in the world. It is not, Um, some kind of flat poker face that never shows any kind of emotions. Um, But it, and it, it, and the key thing here, Wendy is, and I think once people get it, it, it's, and if you say it clearly, you you can get it quite quickly is it's not about outcomes. Yeah. It's not necessarily about your actions in the world. It's allowing yourself to experience whatever it is you're experiencing. The full Monty. Right. Um, So I I talk a a couple of stories um, in the book. You know, one is about being out in a canoe uh, with my husband and a thunderstorm was threatening and the canoe was aluminum. This is such a Canadian story. Um, And I'm (laughs) freaking out because, you know, lightning, aluminum canoe, not good, right? Right. Uh, And I'm realizing that under my breath, I'm going, you know, why the hell are we out here? How'd you get me into this mess again, etc.? And then I realized that those thoughts were there. I accepted them. And all of a sudden, my strength, like 30% more. Like, who knew that there was that much energy tied up? Yeah. Bitching and fetching <laughs> um, You know, I, another example, and this didn't occur to me till many years later, um, and this is perhaps a uh, feminine perspective on it, or certainly a biological mother perspective, is you know, I've had two children. They're both occurred by natural childbirth for some reason. I thought that was a wonderful idea. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I can remember um, at some point, you know, in the, I don't know, 10th hour of labor or whatever it was, was number one kind of going, oh, what the F <laughs> just, I, I don't care anymore. <laughs> right. I don't care. I just let it happen. Right. Right. Um, and she was born 10 minutes later. Because let it happen, right? Let it happen. So I wasn't going to fight the pain, right. right? I wasn't going to fight the pain. I was going to let the pain rip, and that could actually be physical. Um, so, I mean, it's letting yourself experience seeing whatever it is you're experiencing—the good, the bad, the indifferent. Um, so you know, my experience there was—it can actually be the source of a very creative act. Yeah. Um, Yeah. A birthing into life of novelty is allowing yourself to fully experience whatever it is going on. Now that's, you know, in extremis and I was in a hospital and everything was fine. Um, And it can occur at way smaller scales, which is why people do long sits because their knees kill them. (laughs) And you learn to deal with the fact that your knees are hurting. And as long as you know that you're not going to hurt your knees or your back or whatever, and you'll get up and stretch, and you'll be fine. It allows you to deal with physical pain. Um, sometimes emotional stuff will come up. Um, it's so experiencing the full sadness, the full grief. Like we're scared of it. Yeah.
0: See that. I think that's you've hit on something that's key here. Is it and it's it's tied to the equanimity piece, but I think it's tied to everything about mindfulness and meditation. Is the letting it happen, um, and and once you don't have that that watcher, that, that interrupter, um, <clears throat> stopping everything because is this is bad. I don't want to feel this. It hurts. I don't want to do this. I'm avoiding it. I'm going to do this instead, blah, blah, blah. Once you get into a habit or built some sort of habit where you can, you can actually just sit and let it go. Like, like we, we say in Buddhism, you know, sit with the questions rather than answering the questions. That's the most important thing. Um, if you just sit with it, um, you realize that all the things that you were preparing all the horrible things you think were going to happen really aren 't as horrible as they as you thought they were uh, going to be and and it it really changes like how you approach the next day because you saw well, I got through that through that that was
1: not so bad right totally totally um uh, that 's very true, Wendy, and I do want to emphasize the fact that. Letting it happen, letting yourself experience whatever it is your senses are experiencing is very d- different than how you then implement that in your daily life. Yeah. So you may feel the pain of a situation and then you go and confront somebody, but you do it in a more skillful way, we hope. You may make a decision you've been putting off for a long time. Right. So it's not that you don't take action in your life. Right but your action is not as driven or compelled by unconscious drives or feelings. Yeah. It's not reactivity. It's, it's not. not, it's, it's a change between reactivity and a creative response.
0: Yeah, it's like like I I've, I've talked about in, in my earlier podcast. I call that you know the limbic system, the the lizard brain thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it is it is that it's, if you give a if you give yourself a minute and watch the lizard brain do its thing, but then don't react and do what the lizard brain wants you to do,
1: then everything changes. Totally, everything,
0: everything and you, changes. And
1: you also realize that your emotions come in bursts. <laughs> and you have a beginning a middle and an end and the chemical portion associated with that in your body is actually a several seconds to a couple of minutes yeah it's not that long our story about it can last a lifetime <laughs> yeah that's so good I love that I
0: absolutely love that so let's um I got a couple of questions you mentioned us something about waiting for the sitting and when's, wondering when that timer is gonna go off uh, <laughs> And, and, and that reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you, what is your, because someone has asked me this before and, and I, I kind of had a mixed, a mixed uh, answer to it and it probably disappointed them, but actually, but it was, is about like um, all the meditation apps that are out there, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's Insight Timer, Calm, Headspace, there's, there's a million of them now. Um, and w- what do you think of a couple things? What do you think? I, I use insight timer because I use it as a timer for my meditation practice. And right. I, and, and it doesn't say anything to me. It, it just times, right. And chimes. Um, but what do you think of like the, cause a lot of these apps have like guided meditations and all these things that are happening.
1: Tell me your feeling about that. Um, well, I think in a, the, in a nutshell, I think apps, a good app, is a good way to start. Okay. Um, we talked earlier about the need for a teacher and um, um, I think teachers are important.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I think getting good, clear instruction in a way that lands with you can take some doing, you know, mm-hmm. you've got to find somebody that you like and respect and can connect with. Um, uh, one of my earlier meditation teachers, I liked her because she had long, dark hair, red toenails and three kids, you know, she's like, <laughs> she and and was a former dancer um so i could relate to her um so um and now teaching teachings used to come in orally only and then they came in the form of books that were hard to get a hold of and then they came in the form of books that were accessible and now they're packaged up in apps right so i view that as just a natural spreading of the word and of teaching yeah so i think that's great. but I think, I kind of think of them as training wheels on a bike.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's that's really yeah.
1: important. And most kids start with training wheels. But if you want to be able to apply this self-awareness to, to find that gap so that you can move from instinctive reaction to creative response, you can't say, wait a minute, let me plug into my app here. And see what they say. And see, you, have, you have to internalize the teaching yeah yeah and that's the case in anything, so I think they're a great way to start. I use insight timer for the um the chimes. Uh, a lot of people like to see who else is meditating. they use it as a way to create a buddy system mm-hmm. uh, for many people in their practice, knowing they're part of a community really helps them over that learning curve I talked about yeah. whether that's a real life community face to face whether that's app based or you know a, a private group on Facebook or what have you. So I think because it is a little bit like swimming upstream against your own mind, it is, it feels counterintuitive at first. You know, take the supports you can get. We all yeah. need help. Yeah, um, and anything that helps. Exactly. Anything that. that helps. But having said that, don't let your app become a crutch.
0: And that was sort of my response. Thank you. You make me feel better without giving that response. I was saying the same thing. I think too often people then don't like. Uh, take the earplug, you know, the ear the earplugs out, the earpods out, and then just try to do it by themselves, right? Because that's what you're try you're te-
1: that's what it's trying to teach you to do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so I think looking at, at them as a continuum. Um, now, having said that, you know, a number of family members and students, you know, will likely be using the app for fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. 20 minutes twice a day before and after your stressful job that's better than nothing yes exactly so you know i don't think we should be um holier than thou about this um the proof is in the pudding you know by their fruit shall you know them right Uh, so if you're finding that your life is going a little bit better you're a little bit less stressed a little bit more calm compassionate skillful you know is People ask me, assignment. I'm a little less of a bitch, you know? It's um, <laughs> really, um, yeah. exactly. Then, and if, it's, if it stays at the 15, 20 minute app thing twice a day on your commute, that's fine. My caveat to that is when the doo-doo hits the fan, that may not be enough. Uh huh. Right. So you're okay when things are kind of, you know, whatever your normal is, it's okay within your normal. But
0: mm-hmm. there
1: will be times when your normal is turned upside down. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you need to dig deeper. And if the app has helped you to get to a place where you're willing to go deeper, then fantastic. Right. It's the building.
0: If, 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 it is creating a sense of, you know, or that resilient, the resilient muscles, if it is building those muscles, yeah. then, then that's good. And, and, you know, I think people are do become aware of that as, as if they see a little change here, a little change there, then they put more effort into it and so
1: forth. Totally. We need those positive feedback loops. We need right. to know making a difference. Right.
0: Um, we're gonna close in a minute, but I, I did something uh, yesterday, speaking of being a social media addict. I reached out to my buddies on LinkedIn <clears throat> and said that you were going to be my guest on this podcast. And I asked if they had any questions. And these, since these were LinkedIn people, they were work type people, uh, career coach type people. So uh, uh, a connection uh, on LinkedIn, a uh, fellow career coach, Kyle Elliott, he asked this question, um, cause I said any questions, any at all. So I picked out two that are good. Um, he asked this question, how can organizations, and I knew this is right up your alley. How can organizations adapt a culture of mindfulness? He says, I've done it at a team level starting like staff meetings with the two minute meditation, but haven't seen a lot of organa- organizations adapt a culture of mindfulness.
1: Yeah, Kyle, that's a really good question. Um, and you know, I'm of two minds on this, Kyle and Wendy. Um, I have um, colleagues who start their meetings with a couple minutes of pause. Um, I chair a nonprofit organization. We hired an executive director recently. She comes from that background. She can naturally do that with her staff. She can have a mental health background. So you really need to build some calm and resilience into your staff. Um, Um, But I've also seen the opposite where organization X will lay people off and give a mindfulness training as a bit of a (laughs) perk. You can do twice the work for the same rate. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be very cautious here. Um, Your mind, your attention is your most precious resource. It's an untapped resource. Fundamentally it's where you are free or chained. Um, so I think at this stage um, some organizations are encouraging it and that's fantastic. They're providing the courses and the training and the resources and, um, and that's fabulous. Um, but I think this ultimately has to be a matter of personal freedom and personal choice. And that's where I think our Western culture is, is strong. Right. Um, so I'm all for providing resources. I do keynotes, I do trainings, I provide resources but this is you and your mind, you and your attention and your heart. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we should be cautious about big brother getting in there.
0: Yeah. But I, I hear you and I totally get it, but I think, you know, I always think of that. And when Kyle asked that question, the first thing that came to my mind is a lot of more forward thinking organizations, um, started putting like gyms in the, in the workplace. And, um, um, like, they would have like, instead of cubicles, they would have these open offices, you know, millennials have sort of changed the way we work. Um, And, and then they will, they have like Google has, you know, they have playgrounds and all sorts of interesting things to sort of help people do what they need to do to build their internal or inner resources. I think this is just another one of those things. It's like a gym, only it's
1: for your mind. Yeah, and I think if an organization in, in all good faith will provide resources and training and space, that's fantastic. Modeling it at the top, nothing beats that. Right, and that, you're right. Right,
0: if the, if, if the top doesn't buy into it, right, and they're just yeah. doing it because HR told
1: them to, that might be a whole different thing, right? So, so. So, but, but, but let's not underestimate what that means, modeling it at the top. Um, one of my clients has, you know, through an executive coaching program, she's developed this little thing she calls pause, assess, mm-hmm. adapt. She's mm-hmm. beginning to use that as a way for herself and her leading her team meeting. She's a vice president. So this carries some weight. So she tells me the other day, you know, my colleague and the finance guy came over and goes, thanks a lot. Pause. Now we all, you know, like, like she raised the bar for the whole yeah. organization <laughs> and he's kind of like a finance guy. And what do you mean? Pause, Accept it. You know, he's, he'll, he'll do it, but she's not talking about anybody buying Kool-Aid. She's just leading her team differently and people are seeing a difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. I like that. Yeah. Um, one other question um, from my LinkedIn connection Um She writes, and you touched on this a little bit in our conversation, and this is from Eileen, and and you've touched on it a little bit, uh, but maybe you can go a little farther, and I think this is key for everybody, it's key for me. Um, She says, since mindfulness is about honoring the current moment and living in it, how can we use it to quell anxiety about the future, like a big project or a busy season? I always feel like I have to emotionally prepare for those, how can mindfulness aid that prep?
1: That's a fantastic question. And, and I think one of the first things to say, Wendy, is, um, don't, is, to, is to sort of manage expectations here. So don't expect that if you've got a big project coming up and the stakes really are high, that somehow you're going to be floating on a little cloud, <laughs> all calm-like. <laughs> but um, what it can do is it can help you confront your anxiety Mm-hmm. know where those emotional feelings in the body are um you build uh the ability to focus under pressure mm-hmm. and most of us think as focusing is kind of like um oh uh, you know like uh, tightened and you know shoulders hunched over the key <laughs> keyboard or what have you how can you be both very very focused and very relaxed at the same time yeah that's so key so it's it's um, developing a different relationship with your anxiety that allows you to then look at triage problems differently, um, manage issues that come up, adapt milestones um, you know you feel more like you're you're dancing through the problems mm-hmm. uh, rather than suppressing them or wildly overreacting to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it can it be a huge productivity booster uh, problem solving and creativity enhancer so. Um, but it goes back to those, some of those fundamental resilience muscles about persisting, focusing calmly under pressure, knowing not being totally thrown off base by strong emotions, um, and all of those deal some kind of greater sense of, contr- uh, con- not control in the sense of I'm in charge of you, but more like self-control. Yeah. and the mercy of other things you feel like more your you've got a larger gra- a larger view and therefore a larger grasp on things
0: well you know and and, and the, another thing i thought of is it was sort of like in your um your illustrative story of childbirth um, <laughs> is is like you know a, a big a big project you know if you have a if you have a typical response say like prior to mindfulness practice you have a typical um response pattern to big projects coming in the future and you start getting freaked out about two days later and the day before you're like oh, a little bit calm but then that next morning you're like you can't even focus and you're screaming at everybody because you don't you feel so unprepared and so you know the key here is, and you like you said in your childhood story. Oh, I'll just let it happen. If you have some of those, oh, just let it happen. And you you build that sort of practice from having a mindfulness practice. Then when you are anticipating things in the future, you see that coming up in you, and you're able to say, oh, just let it happen, because you are aware of it. The key, I think, the problem with 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 those of us who get stressed. While we're preparing for a big project, which I guess everybody does right um, the 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 problem typically is that we let things build to a fever pitch and we they actually we, we lose control of ourselves right but if we see the little signs like you said if you notice it before it goes to your right shoulder in mine it's my left part of my neck but if it, if you notice it before it hits there then it's not going to, you're not going to lose control. And that big project in the future becomes very doable and manageable because you just saw it. And then you just went on to the next thing you
1: had to do rather than freaking out about what you have to do. Yeah. And, and and too often we don't quite know what we're going to do. So we suppress it and don't think about it. And then it pops up and we go nuts. (laughs) Um, So being able to sort of being more alert to the small signs as they come up and dealing with those, um, so there's, a, again, this goes back to the, the essential difference in, in some of these mindfulness scales. equanimity in particular, is letting yourself physically, mentally, emotionally experience what you're experiencing now, like let it come in, and then you choose to use that information and adapt adaptively in your life. Perfect. So it's not like you're never thinking about the future. Right. Uh, once you get off the cushion, of course, you're going to plan for the future, whether that's what's for dinner tonight or how you're going to meet the budget. Right. Um, but you're, you're doing so in a more open, receptive kind of way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. I think, and that, I
0: think that's a great place to end, but I will leave you with the last words, except to a little talk about your book again. Um, and that is, do you have like one tip you can give someone about starting a mindfulness practice?
1: I would and, say trust in yourself. Good. This is a natural human capacity. Others have done it. It makes a big difference. You can find a way. Don't give up the first time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Meg. Uh, thank I, you, Wendy.
0: I loved this, this, uh, this time with you. Um, and I'll, I'll put on some, at the end, I'll put on some plugs about uh, your book and your coaching and put that in my notes so people know to where to get in touch with you. But thank you so much
1: for being my guest. Well, thank you so much for hosting this. I know this is a relatively new podcast for you. These are always a gift of love. So thank you so much. And I love the pragmatic focus. Um, uh, For me, there are that's where the real test is, is how we turn up in our lives. And you're emphasizing that. So I think it's a real gift. Big bow to you. Oh, big bow to you too. Thank you. Thanks again to
0: Meg Salter for being my special guest today. If you want to learn more about Meg and her book, Mind Your Life, you can go to her website, megsalter.com. Of course, you can um, find out more about her coaching and her. you can get some tips on mindfulness practice. Um, you can order her book online as well as going to Amazon. Uh, Of course, everything's always available on Amazon. Uh, She's been a wonderful guest, and I hope it uh, encouraged you to start a mindfulness practice if you don't have one already, Uh, encouraged you to restart a mindfulness practice or meditation practice if you've had one and you let it slide. Either way, I know this will be beneficial, and um, thank you for joining me, and thanks again to Meg, especially on her birthday. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining Meg. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting the work through ratings, reviews, or a donation on my website, everyday-buddhism.com. Until next time, keep making your everydays better.